0: Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24 7 support. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code Guardian to get 10% off.
1: Hello, this is Music Weekly. I'm Alexis Petridis. This week, we're turning the whole show over to the legend that is Giorgio Moroder. He spoke to Ben Beaumont Thomas recently about his life in music. We will hear about his new career as an international superstar DJ, his difficulties with Freddie Mercury, and indeed the studio genesis of Donna Summer's seminal, I Feel Love. That's all coming up on Music Weekly from The Guardian. The music of Giorgio Moroder is back in vogue, if indeed everyone out of vogue. He's effectively been brought out of retirement by the success of Daft Punk's album Random Access Memories, which included, of course, its biography and song Giorgio by Moroder. He was in town for the London Electronics Arts Festival last week. And Ben, before we hear the two of you in conversation, uh, as we're both huge fans, we thought we would uh, share our favourite Moroder moments. Um, you thought we should begin with something from his kind of pre-disco career, his lesser known, I think it's fair to say, pre-disco career.
0: Indeed, yeah, he... Uh he actually sort of started out making schlager which is german pop music and it's very kind of either rather umpar, incredibly white music mm. and some of it though that that he some of the stars he also worked with were kind of a uh, surf guitar like british invasion kind mm. of 60s pop a real kind of strange variety of things and this is um son of my father which was covered by Chicory Tip and became uh,
1: number one hit in the UK It's an important record with it if you, there are a couple of CD compilations of his Schlager recordings that you know you, you have to say and uh, you know I, I, I bow to no one in my love of Georgia Miroda this is not his finest work <laughs> Absolutely um, and it, it is that kind of We ne- nowadays I think because well, we live in a more cosmopolitan sort of world you, you tend to think you think of continental pop music you think, wow Serge Gainsbourg and, 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 whereas the stuff that he was doing in the late 60s and early 70s is kind of of your classic, as you say, umpar continental pop, and the songs are all called like "Wiggy Wiggy Woo" and it, it, it's, it's,
0: a... it's exactly the sort of same feeling of listening to it that you get when you go on holiday to Spain and you hear some kind of Euro pop song that yeah. you've never had access to before, and all the Spaniards are going nuts for it. Yeah, and there's like a there's a whole dance routine. <clears throat> it's actually bizarre and alien. Um, yeah,
1: but the, the interesting thing about "Son of My Father," other than the fact that it's actually, I think it's actually a really good record, is that we were talking about this earlier, and we think it might be the first pop single to have been entirely made using synthesizers.
0: Or at least embrace them with the kind of in a pop sensibility. Yeah, the I think it it
1: prior to this coming out, um, you know, synthesizers were something either used in this kind of pseudo classical way. People like Wendy, what Walter has, then now Wendy Carlos and switched on Bach, or Tamita's The Snowflakes Are Dancing, or they were kind of an avant garde thing and they were being used by guys like Tangerine Dream, or they were kind of a prog artist to go widdly woo on. Um, and this is, as, you're, as you, if you don't know already, it has a total pop sensibility about it. It's not trying to be clever. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Let's
0: have a listen. <laughs> The I'll see
1: Giorgio Moroder from uh, 1972, Son of My Father. I think he released that just under the name Giorgio. Obviously, his discovery of the synthesizer is one hugely important part of his career. The other hugely important part of his career is meeting Donna Summer, uh, which seems kind of an unlikely person to stumble across in Munich, you know, this kind of belting, black, American female vocalist, you know, really strong-voiced person.
0: Yeah, I think it's, um, it, it's an essential and, like, absolutely pivotal part of his career i mean he moves from that schlagery style which he actually said to me you know he was actually a little bit ashamed of this uh schlager stuff and and that he he was quite embarrassed talking about it and he said that he was making this to make money and that was the kind of dominant pop thing in germany at the time so that was kind of what he was making because he wanted to make music and then donald summer comes along and you, you do get a sense that this is more passionate deeper music more meaningful and it has funk in a way that it, it never did before which is which is really interesting. That's
1: absolutely true I mean the first uh, Donna Summer album is not that synth heavy, I mean Love To Love You Baby is not that synth heavy a record, uh, the first track he made with Donna Summer is amazing it's this track called The Hostage which is kind of a fairly edgy thing to be singing about in sort of Germany in the 70s with the sort of Bader-Meinhof gang and, you know, the Red Army faction, all these kind of people. You can still see the sort of, the kind of hint of novelty and bubblegum basics. It's a song about someone whose husband gets captured and then gets 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 taken hostage, and then at the end of the song she pays the ransom and they kill him anyway. It's a very <laughs> peculiar thing. I, I picked a Donna Summer track. I thought rather than play I Feel Love, we play something off one of the Donna Summer albums. Because one of the things I find interesting about uh, Maroda's work with Donna Summer is that disco is. There's two things about disco. One, it tends like punk; it tends to be at its best in single format, 12-inch single format is the sort of thing. Rather than albums, albums tend to be made. Not all of them. Chic didn't, but most of them tend to be made as a bit of an afterthought. George on and, and Peter Ballot, his uh, his collaborator, actually went in for really big, high, co- you know, it's double concept albums, and everything's got, you know, they're kind of a they're. Of a, unerringly high quality. Uh, this track that we're going to hear working the midnight shift is off once upon a time from 1978 which is a double double concept album. And he seemed to approach it in a slightly different way to any other disco producer. Perhaps because of having worked in, you know, a sort of fairly isolated pop world in Germany. I, you know to me do you on? Do mm. Yeah, you're?
0: and he, he has this a kind of sense of narrative to this track that you didn't necessarily get in lots of other more plainly sort of hedonistic mm. disco tracks. It's, you know, all about the processes of work and, mm. and its sort of mechanicity to it and the, the drudging nature of work. It's, it kind of reminded me of something like um, uh, Making Plans for Nigel or yeah. all these songs that, that evoke work through the, the actual sort of rhythm that And
1: also I create. assumed, perhaps wrongly, that the song, the lyric, which is quite a good lyric, is, is sung from the point of view of, of a prostitute, I thought... Seem to have a thing about uh, portraying Donna Summer as a prostitute, and we got a lot of sort of <laughs> generally ladies. The first album was called Lady of the Night, but what it does brilliantly, this track, is the sort of contrast between her vocal and the sort of mechanistic instrumentation. You get this real sense of of a sort of outsider. It's a song about somebody watching people. Going out to enjoy themselves, and not being able to do that themselves. A song about you know onlooker looking on at people on the dance floor,
0: like uh, um, dancing on my own. Yeah, you know, it's exactly, yeah, like yeah. Of course, That's yeah. The Robin. Same, same melancholy.
1: It's got the same that sort of melancholy about. It. He's really good at mining melancholy out of it's an Amazing song on uh, the Bad Girls album called uh, Lucky, which is good. does a similar kind of thing, which is that sort. Of, it's kind of. Well, love you can dance to it. It works and dance to it, but it's kind of utterly, sort of emotionally desolate piece of music. Uh, Anyway, let's hear a bit of uh, Donna Summer working the midnight shift. 1978, so, okay, working in the midnight shift. The next track that you chose, you, you chose this one, Ben.
0: So, yeah, this is Chase, which uh, Alan Parker, the filmmaker, commissioned after he heard I Feel Love and, and wanted it for his uh, film Midnight Express. It's kind of I Feel Love done in a more epic and and vocalless way mm. over, you know, 12 and a half minutes. It's got that same delayed baseline that characterized uh, "I Feel Love" and, and must have sounded so bizarre when that came out. And I think that, in some ways, maybe this is more. Well, it probably isn't more influential than "I Feel Love" because that was such a smash hit. But this sounds almost more influential in, in, on something like acid house or or techno. It's it's that again, like um, the Donald summer track we picked. This kind of very spartan rather menacing undulating and, and mechanical kind of tone to it that's just absolutely astonishing i can't imagine what it must have sounded like coming out of a of a set of cinema speakers yeah here. yeah <laughs> in, no, absolutely in, in, the, in 1978 or, or I, I,
1: I, you, you do get the impression that his soundtrack work as with kind of people you know, a, lot, a lot of kind of synth wizards went into to soundtrack work you know van Gallis and and uh, Tangerine Dream. And they all proved quite influential, I think, in, more in recent years on dance producers. Mm. Things Popple like, Vu or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think with things like Love on a Real Train by Tangerine Dream, which is from the soundtrack of Risky Business. Obviously, Van soundtrack to a Blade Runner, that kind of thing. And you get the impression that people have started, whereas I feel love is this kind of huge totemic record that casts this sort of massive shadow over dance music and. You know, subsequent pop music, you get the impression that people have dug a little bit deeper into Moroder's catalogue and have started listening more to things like the soundtrack of Midnight Express.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, I think his, again, that sense of narrative uh, that we're talking about with Donna Summer and this rather kind of histrionic and uh, and, and quite camp-often sense of drama that he has, it, it dovetails really nicely with, with filmmaking and, and, and film soundtrack work.
1: Let's hear it. Um, this is Giorgio Moroda Chase. I do a Joe Maroda from the soundtrack of The Nine Express, which came out in 1980. Um, one of the things that's intriguing about Maroda is how adaptable he proves, which again is probably a legacy of working in bubblegum pop, you know what I mean, where you had to be adaptable to whatever the latest novelty thing was. When the disco ship sinks, he doesn't go down with it. Like Nile Rodgers, he's entirely capable of adapting his style and his sound to the coming thing. And you see it in records like Call Me. By Blondie, which doesn't sound remote like a Donna Summer record at all, you know. That's one of the things I guess that, that kind of saved him from vanishing with the disco era. And the other one is that he was incredibly good at soundtracks. <laughs> he seems to have embraced Hollywood in uh, no uncertain terms.
0: He absolutely does. You know, he has this mastery of of what makes a sort of narrative within a record itself and how that can be applied to a kind of quite generic uh, three-act structure film. I mean the films he worked with were big Hollywood films, and, and for a while he was he was making you know four a year. And really, like I, I didn't know that exactly uh, many. Actually. I, I, he he did admit that some of them weren't quite as as good as others, but I think that something like Cat People, the David Bowie song of the same name, and from the film of the same name, it's again very very over the top. It, it begins in this quite <laughs> spartan way, <laughs> and, you, and you think, oh, this is really interesting, and then Bowie just gives it this like full bore. Campness, yeah, uh, yeah, like this yeah, note that cuts through talking about putting out fire with gasoline, and it's and yeah, and and, and then this kind of these funk guitars come in, this quite sort of brittle electronic energy. He he brings together a lot of things that he seems to have learned from disco and and applies it to this rather cocky, glossy sort of 80s paradigm, for want of a better word, that, that he, he finds himself. No,
1: absolutely, into. and it's interesting. The version we're going to hear, which is the original, Maroda produced version, it's interesting to contrast that with the subsequent version that comes out on Let's Dance, which is produced mm. by Nile Rogers, which is completely glossy 80s. You know, I mean, Let's Dance is the big glossy 80s Bowie pop album. And actually, this is a much stranger and more serpentine and, you know what I mean, uh, record than... Yeah, uh, so much rougher. Yeah, it does it does feel much rougher. Um, uh, but it's also, I think, it's quite a good song. So let's hear it. David Bowie's Cat People. It's just the fear... Of losing you, don't you know my name? Well, you've been so long, and I've been putting out fire with gasoline. Cat People, uh, by David Bowie, from the film, the 1982 film of the same name. As you say, he uh, produces a lot of soundtracks. He wins a lot of, like, he got three Academy Awards. And yeah. I mean, there is a period where having kind of already, you know, changed the face of pop music, you know, irrevocably by making I Feel Love. He then goes on to basically become kind of the biggest producer in the world for a, for a. Sort yeah, of I period. mean, Top Gun
0: is one of the, the definitive soundtracks. Uh, yeah, he, he does sort of excel at the, the over the top uh 80s thing that he kind of helped birth but then for something like the track we're gonna to listen to next which is a uh, push it to the limit a track he wrote for the scarface soundtrack mm. which he also won an oscar for it's one of those examples of a record that's so completely appropriate for the film it's made it's it's utterly empty it's utterly aggressive it sounds like it's been made on a perfect snow white mound of cocaine basically (laughs) and uh, we should say that there's no evidence to suggest uh, Georgia absolutely not Uh, but it's it's kind of got that that evil sort of Tony Montana overblown energy and complete sort of amorality to it it's Mm. it's a very empty song the melody isn't isn't strong at all it kind of gets by on on bluster and and gloss and production but but there is something because it's paired with this film that reflects and and explores all of those things it, it feels weirdly
1: appropriate this is pushed to the limit. Push it to the limit. That's Push It to the Limit by George Amarada from the soundtrack of Scarface. He, he just stops. He stops making records, which is amazing. He just seemed to get bored, which is a... a you know, more artists should do that. Yeah. <laughs> he goes off and does a lot of really quite bizarre things. He designed, designed a pyramid, the car, right? Designed a car. A supercar. Designed a pyramid but the people are going to live in in Dubai. He was the Kanye West of his day. He anyway. was the Kanye West. And, 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 <laughs> and, you know, unlike Kanye West, none of these projects... I suppose they, all, they did kind of get off the ground. Some of them got off the ground, some of them didn't. It's intriguing to see how he adapts. As a man in his 70s, you know, after the best part of 20 years, 25 years not making music, to this new world, on which he obviously exerts a vast influence but he seems to be pitching himself right into the middle of the world of uh, of EDM. Indeed,
0: yeah. It it's, it does seem weirdly appropriate. I mean, I'm sure people will be crying cynic at the at the news that he's planning a um sort of Cirque du Soleil style theatrical extravaganza in Las Vegas, which is kind of EDM's spiritual home in many ways. <laughs> Ask him well, what what's your favorite DJ who do you my in the art form of DJ, yeah, DJ and thinking, you know, he's been through the, the disco mm. era, he's probably seen Nicky Ciano and he's yeah, seen yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, all these amazing DJs. And he said, Tiesto. And he, and he absolutely loves Skrillex, or Skrillek, as he, uh, as he uh, pronounced it. There is something that makes sense with that. These people are very, as I said before, sort of histrionic, that mm. it's over the top, it's, it's quite camp. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a lot of what he's been making in the past as well. So he, to align himself explicitly with this kind of new school that he's found himself Fated by isn't as cynical as, uh, as some people might initially think. No, I think, think it makes
1: a degree of sense and also, you know, as we've discovered from from the get-go when he was making, you know, records called Diggy Wiggy Woo or whatever. Um, you know, George Murray is a populist. I mean, that's the thing. On one hand, he's fated as this sort of, you know, quite rightly so, fated as a hugely important sort of electronica producer. But... All his music, all his successful music, is about populism, whether that's disco. You know, disco is utilitarian music. It's music to dance to. It's not music that's that's necessarily making a grand statement about anything It's capable of doing that, but that's not the point of it. Mm. Schlager is sort of disposable throwaway pop music. The films he was working on, he wasn't working on weird art house kind of movies. It's big-ass, you know, Hollywood blockbusters that he's doing. So I think it makes kind of a perfect sense that he would do it. You know, he writes great pop songs. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And there's adaptable, which is why I sort of brought this, the crime the, the track in, which is a bit of a marauder obscurity. It's a single from 1977 by Janice Ian, who is a, uh, as am sure listeners know, rather, uh, earnest uh, 60s singer songwriter responsible for a song called Society's Child, um, which is a huge, huge hit in the late 60s. I guess, like everybody, she needed. You know, she move with the times, and you needed a disco move. You know, lots of people had a disco makeover, and uh, this is a track she did with Moroda called "Fly Too High." That uh, I really like. It, it, it's a big kind of um, one of the records that I DJ Harvey plays, and Balearic
0: I, Chugger. It's, it's, a,
1: it's definitely a Bolero Chugger. It's got some sax on there. You know, that's and that's the other thing about Moroda as well. If you're talking about the way that he defines the sound of TV and cinema in the '80s, you should always remember that his protege was Harold Faltermeyer who did. You know, it was the Axel F and all the music from Miami Vice and all that kind of thing. And I think Fultemar was involved with this record as well. It's pretty smooth music, you know. It's kind of got a little hint of yacht rock about it. I am a oh, sort of thing I quite like. I just think it's a really interesting, rounded record, and it shows his adaptability, the way he could go from doing this to working with Blondie, to going from doing the film soundtrack, to making records with Donna Summer. You know, these are all kind of quite different artists. Uh, from 1979, this is the 12-inch version of Janice uh, Ian's Fly Too High. Anonymous i in Before you disappear, if you That's "Fly Too High from 1979, produced by Giorgio Moroder. So, let us move on, Ben. Let's listen to your interview with a great man.
2: Everybody calls me Giorgio.
0: So, Giorgio, at 73 years old, you're kind of maybe more celebrated than you ever have been, or at least for a long time. How does that feel?
2: Yeah, that's true. I, I, you know, I did my first DJ gig like f- more than 40 years ago f- because I, I was I would go to a little discotheques in Germany to make some money and sing and play some records. But then zero. Then I went into producing and and, and now, especially through so two things, actually the DJing thing and that big hit which not me but Daft Punk has with the album and my song get Me out of retirement, let's say that.
1: <laughs>
0: if we do go back to the 1960s, there's been a, a really good compilation that came out just recently called Schlager Maroda, okay. which was a, <laughs> a kind of collection of, of some of your earliest work, right from the mid 60s to mid 70s. Yeah. So there's, there's a huge range of stuff on there. It's uh, like Garage rock and sort of surf music and yeah. UK uh, guitar pop and like glam rock. Uh, yeah. What what sort of drew you to all those styles? Sort of uh,
2: that was the confusing days. <laughs> <laughs> I liked. Uh, first of all, I I'm not ashamed to say I, lo- I love bubblegum, mm. uh, Ohio Express, and I had a song actually, and I said a bubblegum <laughs> song, and then I did some some drum and stuff. I, at that time, I lived in between Berlin and Munich. And uh, I did some German stuff and then started to to do recordings in English. So I went through a lot of different styles, but it was a little bit of searching for whatever is going to be my love, the real
0: kind of music I like. And your real voice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And did that come when you discovered synthesizers?
2: Yeah, a synthesizer, that was, that was a crucial moment. I had loved a recording of Walter Carlos, uh, who had an album called uh, Switch It On Bach. Oh, yes. And I loved the fact that it was one instrument playing all the other instruments. So I had a friend of mine in Munich who had one of those big, giant, modular moogs and uh he played me some of the stuff and i loved it i made a deal with the, with his engineer and uh, he he helped me out to create the sounds so you know, it was absolutely difficult to just to connect all the stuff was a, a, you needed to be a little a minor genius mm.
0: and then as you sort of go through the years you you collaborate and produce and write for a huge number of people i mean do you have any idea actually how many compositions and productions you've made over the
2: years. I think I have about probably 500 songs which came out on a, on a record. Mm. Uh, let's say songs which made it big probably 20 and maybe 50 you know bubbling under like mm. top maybe top 100. So uh, prob I guess probably 100 songs were somehow in the charts.
0: Yeah. And, and how do you kind of maintain that that work ethic through you know hundreds and hundreds of new tracks? How do you sort of keep a, uh, an excitement and a, an innovation?
2: Well, it, it's it's very difficult because at one point, especially, especially in the early 80s, I could not really say no to projects. And I didn't have a manager. So whoever came and said, oh, do a song for me, do something, I would say, yeah, yeah, yeah of course, I do it. And so you get into a situation where suddenly you have to, you have to have twenty songs in the next uh, few months, and uh, especially some movies. I I, I knew I, I needed uh, seven, eight songs, and that is not good. That is not. I I, I won't tell you which movie, but there's one <laughs> one movie which I think is dreadful, because I just didn't have time. to to recoup and and go back and relax and get into the new one because then somebody would call, is my song done, is my song... So that was not a good period because uh, creatively, I'm fast, but you still need, you still need
0: time. And in music, I mean, you've collaborated with some greats: Freddie Mercury, David Bowie and so on. Who do you perhaps look back on with with most fondness in terms of your working relationship
2: but uh, Freddie Mercury was not easy
1: Love don't give no compensation Love don't...
2: was a tough guy.
0: In what
2: way? Uh, you know, no, I don't want this one. No, we should do this. You know, it's, he was very much involved uh, in, in detail and which is good. Uh, with Bowie, it, it was a pleasure. I sent him the demo from America. He sent me back uh, his version of it. Uh, he wrote the lyrics. Uh, we decided to record it. Uh, so we met uh, in a hotel in, in Montreux. And we had dinner with the director, Paul Schrader, and myself and him. He was just telling me uh, the lyrics, which I didn't have all L- lyrics, are putting out the fire with gasoline, mm. which I loved the idea. And so we decided to, to go into the studio the day after in the, the, the Queen's uh, studio in the Casino in Montreux. Right. I was thinking let 's start whatever three, four o 'clock in the afternoon, you know mm. that 's when usually singers come in no he said no, no let's let's do it. So I come here he said on in the morning for breakfast at ten, then we walked there actually and and we recorded it so we he was there at ten we had breakfast we We, we went to the studio, and I think he took him maybe two or three takes, maybe a, a little more than an hour. Mm. And so David and I said, OK, done. Yeah, yeah, great. There's nothing else to do. And Paul Schrader said, OK, guys, that's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. I, I, I have to have at least 10 takes for a movie. <laughs> he said, well, movies are movies. We are the professionals. <laughs> so so actually, he was absolutely surprised. And and uh, then I, I took the tapes home and mixed, and it was mm. done.
0: Well, when you're working now, do you... How do you avoid sort of pastiching your previous work and 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 falling back onto a kind of Giorgio Moroder brand? How do you kind of keep well, it fresh? Well, actually,
2: uh, I'm going back a little bit to 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 not really dance uh, disco disco, but ideally a song like the uh, Daft Punk uh, "Get Lucky." Mm. That has a great combination of live drums, what I, whatever I did all the time. Mm. Obviously not the violins and not some, but you know Fender Rhodes and then, but then adding intro, uh, electronics. Mm. And since I'm lucky enough to have done both, electronic with I Feel Love, and then strictly disco, I'm mm. going to combine whatever I did. And I notice people love that. Mm. People love that. Uh, it's It's getting more and more back to the old way to do songs now, thank mm. God because the like the American call it e d m and all those songs are are mostly built up with first different composers, each one composes eight bars and then the producer comes in and says, "Okay, this is great, this is great but so generally speaking, there is not a very much of a consistency in like a song we did like mm. Intro chorus, intro verse chorus, like a song, mm. in my opinion, should be.
1: Mm-hmm. Well,
2: now a lot of big hits have pieces and pieces. Mm. And, and for example, a good example is that song with, um, with Avicii, uh, uh, Wake Wipe Me, Me Up, that style of, of a sequence. And, uh, and I think that's what the, the, new, the new dance is going to be more and more
0: that they're shifting so, back towards song forms.
2: Yeah, and and especially now with with Daft Punk and Nile using all the guitars and uh, it, it is the it, it is what what kind of dance started and what's going back now.
0: Yeah. The song that obviously in the UK at least you're best known for is is I Feel Love. And and it's seen as such a influential piece of music. I mean, where was the kind of spark for that rolling, constantly undulating sort of bass line?
2: Well, the idea, Pete Bellotti, my co-producer, we had the idea of doing an album with Donna with the songs of the 50s, kind of some 60s, songs of the 70s. And I thought we need a song of the future, right? So I thought the only way to do it is to do it with with the computers, only computers. Mm. So. I had this big modular morgue and I had uh, my guy, and I said, "Okay, I don't know how to start, but let's start with the bass line." I played, uh, I think a C, dong 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 dun, He got me the note, and then uh, dong two notes, dong dong. Then he got, I, gave me a G, dun, 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 and he was tuning it. So finally, I could play. We put a click on. I could play, dong 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 dung and then I'll mm. just speed it up or down. And so the bass line was done and then we created white noise and Mm. then cut it off like shh for the hi-hat, then middle range for the snare. The song was done without a melody Mm. because you cannot compose and and tweet at the same time. Mm. So when it was done, I started to sing the melody and then Donna obviously wrote the lyrics and sang it.
0: so were you literally starting with that, that long, sustained note that she begins with? How did you sort of write the melody over it? Uh, do
2: you know what she just told me lately, about a year ago, before she died? She said, that was a strange uh, recording, because on one hand she felt that... Mm. That, ..that stuff, mm. and now what I'm going to sing against that. So mm. it was great, that contrast between that, that fast, uh, pulsing thing, and she singing very... High and very romantic, so we had on one hand that romantic stuff up there, but the driving thing. Mm. And then when we mix it down, the original was dung 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 dong, and uh, Jurgen Coppers, my my sound engineer, added a delay, mm. and suddenly it sounded. I said, Oh, that's a whole new that yeah. was the key moment, yeah. when that came.
0: And and your your working and relationship otherwise with Donna Summer was a uh, very sort of long lasting. You you did a huge number of songs together. What yeah. why did what did you find in each other that was sort of so compelling?
2: Uh, I, I loved her. She was a absolutely sweet girl, always making fun, always joking and and she was so fast. She was fast. Mm. And and I must say she came in sometime, she did a song in twenty minutes. And as soon as, uh, as soon as Pete and myself said, it's great, she would li- leave happy and Yeah, we were. I was recording with her a voice of a, of a track, and Pete Bellotti, Keith Forsey, the drummer, and Harold Faltemeyer, the keyboard player, they just went to a different room in the, in the studio with a guitar and after an hour came back and said, "Jojo, I think we have a hit. And he was looking for some hot stuff. (laughs) And it was ready, so I think Donna sang it right there. The lyrics (laughs) were ready, Uh, we had some musicians, I think we recorded it the same day and it was done.
0: And and it's the sort of the disco numbers are are so uh, imperceptibly but but quite significantly different from the kind of schlager pop um, sort of guitar music you were making before. There's a kind of funk to it, that it. It moves away from quite four four. There's a sort of syncopation there. What what kind of brought her about that that interest in in funk? Most?
2: Well, uh, uh, I must say the first the song in that style was Love to Love You Baby with Mm. Donna. I mean, you have one of the best singers ever. Somebody who used to sing in church, uh, you know, gospel and Mm. who knows how to belt out a song. And I knew that uh, with her you could do whatever you wanted. And uh, the first one was not exactly a great song with a great voice because we, because I wanted to have that high, sexy voice. Mm.
0: A lot of moaning. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and
2: past the morning, Okay, that made a song. Except the BBC then didn't
0: play it. Right. <laughs>
2: So that brought me in uh, in doing more R&B and, and disco is actually a little more R&B and mm. and, and uh, not as strict as like deutsche Schlager, which mm. I by the way
0: hated anyway to do. <laughs> but but and yet you found yourself kind of making it anyway because it was around as a popular style.
2: Yeah, there there was no disco then, and yeah. I made I had to make. Some living, and and, uh, and at the time I was in German but I always wanted to to do some international stuff.
0: And and now you started DJing. Was that a a discipline that you enjoyed learning? I mean, it's a real art form in a way. Uh,
2: DJ is the the. In, for me, the easiest thing in my life. Right. Because I, first of all, I know every song because they're all my songs. <laughs> S- second, I was just counting the other day. I think I did in my life probably a thousand mixes. Mm-hmm. You know, Every song of Donna, which are about 80 songs, 90 songs, I did the three and a half version. The five and a half version, the eight version, the twelve uh, as minute in version, minutes long, e- yeah. minute version, and then the compilation, and then uh, faded in with other songs. Uh, so for me to f- to fade in and out and do effects, that's very easy. Mm. And uh, um, I used to work with uh, Chris Cox as my right hand, you know, knowing the Ableton. Mm. Uh, I started to to use Ableton by myself, mm. and I know it a little better. But I know I know enough to work, mm. and uh, I know it better and better.
0: So now I feel totally confident. That, so. And you play all your own tracks in a in a DJ set?
2: I play my own. I I recorded two or three new songs. Mm. I re- I re-recorded. Actually, I did a new recording of uh, the main theme of Scarface. I did With a, a
0: bit more kind of dance floor.
2: Kick. Yeah, plus it, it's a slow song. Yeah. Uh, that, that, uh, dun, dun, yeah. Dun, I did it. Uh, yeah. So I have about two or three new songs. I found an incredible mix of uh, a, a British group called Japan, mm. uh, Sylvian. With Sylvian. Yeah. A song called, that I produced called Life in Tokyo. I found a a remix of somebody and I cut it, I made it mine, so to say, and it works wonderfully.
0: And and, uh, what more do you want to achieve? Are there other kind of completely different creative avenues that you want to kind of
2: walk Oh, I I think DJ for now (laughs) (laughs) is enough. But my next project, uh, we're coming up with an idea of creating a kind of a new disco show called A Night with (laughs) Giorgio Morodo, something like
0: that. Like kind of Soul Train type thing? Yeah,
2: (laughs) where I would do the DJing, but then before me, we have a famous DJ, Maybe somebody after we have, uh, we have of course the ball. We have maybe some dancers in, in a cage. Uh, you know, like <laughs> like a like a Studio 50. Yeah. We create Studio 54, and then have it or in, in Vegas or in Macau or in London. I don't yeah. know wherever uh, as a permanent show.
0: Oh, I see. So it yeah. would be like a, a theatrical experience. Yeah. almost.
2: Yeah, but based on disco. And, yeah. and obviously. I wouldn't just use my own songs because there are so many mm. great disco songs, uh, Chic and uh, mm. all the, all those guys. I would do probably an hour and a half, and
0: uh,
2: we were thinking first to start in, in 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 Vegas, which is a great city
0: to do that. So in seven, in your 70s, you finally become a kind of rock star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. Huh, huh, huh?
1: Giorgio Miroda in conversation with Ben Beaumont-Thomas there. That's it from us this week. Check out guardian.co.uk forward slash music for more information on the show. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
0: Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag-and-drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code Guardian.